Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. I've titled my sermon this morning, Disappointed with Jesus when God doesn't meet your expectations. Last week, we uh, studied the healing of the centurion's slave. Many of you were here with us, and our text this morning takes place very soon after that event. Jesus leaves Capernaum, where the centurion was, and he enters a city called Nain. And as he enters this city, we see, uh, first, first, just to give you kind of the layout of this morning, we're going to move very quickly through the first story, which is the raising of the widow's son. And then we're going to spend a little bit more time on John the Baptist and the interaction there later. So we'll start in verse 11, where this is Jesus as he's coming into the city of Nain. It says, came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. So Jesus enters this town with a crowd of people following behind him. And they come there and they see a funeral procession headed out of town. So there are two crowds going uh, toward one another. Verse 12, Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. Now normally in uh, funerals of that day, a, a grieving family would lead the procession, followed by the body of the deceased and then uh, the crowd behind the body. And there would be paid mourners. Maybe you've read about these in the Bible where people were uh, paid to weep and to wail. Uh, it was just some of you might get a good job that way. I don't know. Uh, but that, that was a normal thing back then. So this was a large crowd of people that were following. And uh, it was very obviously a funeral procession. Luke mentions that the woman who was leading this uh, funeral was a widow. She had lost her husband at some point prior to this. And now she had just lost her only son. And a widow normally would be dependent on her sons. After the, the husband had died, she would be really up to, it would be up to the sons to take care of their mother. And now she's just lost her only son. Also, the family line would not go on. This was a big deal in Jewish culture that your name would continue. But if you just lost your only son, uh, there was no chance of that either. And so this woman is grieving this loss. Verse 13 says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, which is like a stretcher that they were carrying the body on. They that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. Last week, Jesus healed the centurion's slave. It was quite an amazing miracle. The centurion's slave was at the point of death, and Jesus completely healed him instantly. This morning, the man is completely dead. He's on his way to be buried, and Jesus raises him from the dead. And this miracle had a huge impact on the people who saw. You see in verse 16, the response, it says, There came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him, of Jesus, went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region roundabout. This is yet another indication of God's divine power. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can breathe life into a dead human being. And this, uh, this miracle shows that Jesus is the God who, in Genesis 2, breathed into man the breath of life. It's proving his deity once again. And the crowd that followed Jesus was amazed. 
they were on their way to bury this man, the crowd that followed the mother, and they were likewise amazed. And the news of this miracle spread very quickly all over Israel. Now, John the Baptist gets word of this. You may remember John the Baptist, uh, we left him back in chapter 3. He was preaching, uh, baptizing people in the Jordan River, and telling them that they should repent of their sins and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Herod didn't like this message very much because John pointed out uh, his sin. And so Herod locked John the Baptist up in prison. And that's where we left John, back in chapter 3. He was locked up in prison, and now, at this point, John is still in prison, and he's not going to escape. He'll be executed shortly after this text. So he's sitting in prison, awaiting his execution, and he receives word from some of his followers about all that Jesus is doing. He hears the report that Jesus is healing people. He's, he's just raised somebody from the dead. This news comes to John in prison. In verse 18, the disciples of John showed him of all these things, and John calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Now isn't that a strange reaction? Uh, John knew who Jesus was. He declared publicly that Jesus was the Messiah, and he pointed people to him and said, This is the one that I said was coming. And now as he gets word of the miracles Jesus is doing, his response is, Are you really the one? Isn't that strange? You would think that hearing that Jesus just raised somebody from the dead would confirm John's faith, but it had the exact opposite reaction. Now he's beginning to doubt. He's doubting if Jesus is truly the Messiah. And so he asks for confirmation. Are you really the one, or have I misunderstood this? Now, why would hearing this news cause John to respond in this way? The answer has to do with John's expectations of Messiah. John, like all of the religious Jews of his day, was eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They were looking forward to this. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised that the Messiah would come and judge the ungodly. He would set up his kingdom on earth. That was the Jewish hope. And that's what John was expecting Jesus to do. Uh, John, at one point, like I said, had been convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but now he was beginning to doubt because Jesus wasn't doing the things that the prophets said Messiah would do. He wasn't setting up his kingdom. He wasn't overthrowing the Roman government like they were all expecting. John the Baptist, back in chapter 3, you may remember, he preached these words. Uh, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. That was what John was expecting Jesus to do. Uh, lead a military revolution against the Romans, free Israel, and set up the kingdom of God. This message of judgment, that's what John was expecting, judgment against Israel's enemies. That was the widespread understanding of what the Messiah was going to do. You may remember the disciples of Jesus struggled with this as well. They had the same expectation, that the Messiah would come, that he would overthrow the Roman government, set Israel free. Uh, that was what they were expecting. On the road to Emmaus, this is after Jesus' crucifixion, two of the disciples were walking in Luke 24, and they're talking about how Jesus uh, had died. They were disappointed because they thought he was the Messiah, and now he's dead. And they were, they were asked about why they were so sad, and they responded by saying, well, Jesus was a mighty prophet, uh, but the Jewish le leaders crucified him. In verse 21, they say this, we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. That was the source of their uh, disappointment in Jesus. 
They thought that Jesus was going to set Israel free from the Romans, from this oppression they had been under for so long. And instead, he died on a cross. Uh, that didn't seem to go along with the plan. Now, I need to explain a little bit about the misunderstanding of Messiah at this point so you get what's happening here. In the Old Testament, there's many prophecies about the coming Messiah, who we now know to be Jesus. The Messiah was supposed to usher in the kingdom of God and judge those who were God's enemies. And the Jews of Jesus' day were looking forward to this because they considered the Romans to be the enemies of God's people. They were, after all, oppressing them and occupying their land. So it made sense that the Messiah would come, he would overthrow Rome, he'd set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and bring peace to the world. A good example of a prophecy like this is Isaiah 35, where Isaiah said, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. That's what they were expecting Messiah to do, to come with vengeance against their enemies, to wipe out the Romans, and to set up the kingdom of God, to save them from Rome. Now, Jesus is that Messiah. He is the, the one who, who fulfills Isaiah 35, but he doesn't fulfill all of the prophecies at the same time, and this was the confusion that they had. Jesus came the first time preaching the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom, and he died on behalf of our sin and rose again and ascended to heaven. Now, when Jesus returns, he will judge those who have re rejected his kingdom rule. And he'll set up his throne in Jerusalem and establish peace and justice on the earth. This is what we know uh, in scripture is in our future, that Jesus will come back again. What the Jews of Jesus' day did not understand is that these are two separate events. They were expecting the Messiah to come and do all of these things, not come, do some of them, and then leave and return later. It's an understandable mistake. Jesus tried to explain this confusion back in chapter 4. You may remember he was preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's reading from Isaiah 61, where Isaiah wrote that the Messiah was coming to preach good news to the poor, to set at liberty the captives, to bring sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of God's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, and he stopped mid-sentence, because the rest of it goes on to say, and to bring the day of God's vengeance. Uh, Jesus stopped and he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. That's the first half of Isaiah's prophecy. So he's trying to show there that the rest of the prophecy will be fulfilled later, when Jesus comes again. And so the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago was to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And the second coming is when Jesus will judge the enemies of God and establish his kingdom visibly here on earth and rule from Jerusalem. The Jews thought this was all going to happen at once, and so they were very disappointed when Jesus didn't start a revolution to overthrow the Roman government. By the way, uh, let me just mention at this point, uh, be careful about future prophecies in the Bible. Uh, be careful about thinking that we have it all figured out. Okay, if John the Baptist could make a mistake like this, if all of the Jewish leaders could look at the future prophecies of Messiah and not get every, every detail just right, I think we should be careful about being dogmatic about future prophecies. Rarely are biblical prophecies clearly understood until after they take place. And I think when it comes to end times prophecies, for instance, we, we need to have some humility as we talk about those subjects and recognize we may not have it all figured out before it happens, and that's okay. I don't think arguing and debating about the exact order of events or how everything is going to go down is necessarily something Christians should take part in. There's some things that are clear. Uh, there's some things that, for instance, are in our doctrinal statement. We believe that Jesus is going to come again. Uh, we believe Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. He's going to defeat Satan ultimately and condemn him to eternal judgment. Uh, we believe strongly in heaven and hell that the ultimate end 
of humanity. Whether you're a follower of God or not, you will be either in heaven or in hell, respectively. Both of these are things Jesus taught explicitly. So those are, uh, you could say, end times positions that we hold to strongly. But the exact order of events and, uh, you know, what the mark of the beast means or something, those types of things, I think there's room to disagree. And my guess is all of us are in for a few surprises uh, when things take place. We might not have it all figured out, and that's okay. So I say all that to say, just be careful about being dogmatic about future prophecies. Don't make that your focus. Lots of well-meaning people have misunderstood biblical prophecies, even John the Baptist. John the Baptist seemed to have misunderstood these prophecies just like the rest of the Jews. They were not expecting Messiah to be a spiritual leader. They were looking for a military leader, somebody who would overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom. But Jesus was not following this path. And so John had begun to doubt. He'd begun to wonder, is Jesus really the Messiah? He's not doing what we expected the Messiah to do. He was doubting because the expectations were not being met. He was expecting Jesus to defeat the Romans, but actually Jesus had come to be killed by the Romans on a cross. This was absolutely unexpected. There may be a more personal aspect to John's disappointment. After all, he's in prison. He's, he's been sentenced there by Herod. And so if Jesus comes and overthrows the Romans, then John gets to get out of jail. Uh, my guess is he was looking forward to deliverance. He was expecting that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to get rid of the Romans, he's going to set up his kingdom, and I'm going to get out of prison. This was his only hope. He was counting on Jesus to save his life. But John was never set free, as I mentioned. He was put in prison because he was a faithful preacher. He'd done nothing wrong. And how the story of John the Baptist ends, I think, is one of the saddest uh, events in the Bible. Herod's birthday comes. John is sitting in prison. Herod's birthday comes, and Herodias' daughter dances before Herod and pleases him so much that he decides, I'll give you anything you want. And she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And they take John out of his prison cell, and they cut off his head. What a meaningless way to die. What a waste. That's the end of John the Baptist's story. Sometimes God interrupts a funeral to raise the dead, and sometimes you're sitting in jail expecting deliverance, and instead you die. We think faith is trusting that God's going to get you out of jail. But I think what really takes faith is trusting God even when he doesn't set you free. When you're like John the Baptist and you're sitting there wondering, what is God doing? We become upset with God when he's not doing what we expected he would and should do. But what John the Baptist didn't understand is that although Jesus was not meeting his expectations, he was doing something far greater. John thought his number one need in life was for Rome to be overthrown and for him to be set free from prison. But instead, Jesus had come to die on a cross. And by dying on that cross, he purchased John the Baptist's forgiveness. He came to die in order that John would have eternal life with God. And that's something John didn't understand, and yet it was so much better than what he was hoping for. Sometimes God doesn't meet our expectations, but instead allows things that don't make sense to us in the moment in order to accomplish something far beyond the little thing we think we need so much. John needed a dying Savior more than a conquering Messiah. He just didn't know it. John thought Jesus had come to save his life, but actually Jesus had come to save his soul. In verse 20, 
The men come to Jesus with this message from John. It says, The men were come to him. They said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? So here's the question. Can you give me some confirmation? Are you the Messiah, or did I get this wrong? Jesus responds in the following verses. Luke tells us, In the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Jesus offers this as evidence to John. Go tell John, you've seen me cause the blind to see. You've seen deaf people begin to hear. You've seen the dead raised. And tell John, I'm proclaiming good news to the poor. Now, this would have reminded John of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to them that are bound. Isaiah 35 is a similar passage. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out in streams in the desert. I think Jesus is saying, John, you may not understand what I'm doing right now, and why I'm not starting a revolution against Rome, but listen to what I am doing, and compare that to those prophecies in the Old Testament, and you'll see I am the Messiah. There's enough clear fulfillment there for you to have confidence in who, in who I am. The blind are seeing. The dead are raised. The deaf are hearing. This is all evidence that I am the, the coming one. Jesus announced the arrival of God's kingdom. We've seen that already in the, in the book of Luke. Jesus preaches and says God's kingdom is here. But the Jews were expecting God's kingdom to come in like the 82nd Airborne and just all at once there it is. But instead Jesus said it's more like a mustard seed. It starts with one little seed that goes into the ground it dies, and then it comes bursting forth out of the ground and slowly forms a, a, a large tree. That was Jesus' illustration of the kingdom. The kingdom came with Jesus' arrival. It started small with one person. And then it was passed on to the disciples, and then in the book of Acts it begins to spread from there. And here we are today on the opposite end of the world, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. This is God's kingdom expanding over time. It didn't happen all at once. The miracles of Jesus were a glimpse into what life will be like in the kingdom when it's here in its fullness. For now, certainly, we see glimpses of God's kingdom, right? I think each church is an expression of God's kingdom. Each Christian that allows Jesus Christ to rule as king in your life, you're an expression of God's kingdom. But in, in the future, we believe the kingdom will come in its fullness. Uh, like the Jews were expecting, we believe God will come again, that Jesus will establish his throne in Jerusalem and rule over all the world. But for now... John was given the assurance that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and it's proven by the miracles that are taking place. Jesus ends with a gentle rebuke in verse 23. He says, Tell John, blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Trust me, John. You know who I am. Now trust that I'm doing everything according to plan. I, I know things haven't gone the way you've expected, but can you trust me? I wonder if God sometimes looks at us and says, can you trust me? Can you trust that I'm doing something you need more than you realize? Or do you only have faith in me when what I'm doing is everything the way you think I should? Because that's not faith at all. Do you ever wonder as you read the Bible and look at your own life why things don't always seem to line up? 
Uh, John certainly had a good reason to be upset. He's in prison. He did nothing wrong. He was following the word of God, preaching faithfully, and he's about to be executed. And so as he hears of what Jesus is doing, it doesn't line up with his expectations. Jesus admonishes him to stop expecting me to do things the way you think I should and instead trust in me. If you believe I'm the Christ, then trust that I'm not going to mess up the plan. It's a good principle for us today. You may not understand why God does everything the way he does, but if you believe he is God, then trust that he knows what he's doing and he's doing it well. And all Christians have seasons of doubt. Uh, I don't think any honest Christian in this room would say, I've never been disappointed with Jesus. I've never had any of, all of my expectations have been met since I've been saved. I don't think any of us can say that. All Christians have seasons of doubt. Times when God isn't doing what we expected. And doubt can have either a positive or negative uh, result in your life, depending on how you respond to it. I think if, if you respond to your questions and to your doubts with humility, it can lead to deeper faith. Because even if you don't understand fully, you still trust God. Even if I don't have all of my expectations met, I still believe and I still trust and have faith that God knows what he's doing. That's spiritual maturity. However, if you respond to doubt with pride, it leads to rebellion. And that's the danger of doubt. And if you take it too far, you just reject God altogether. I'm going to close this morning by reading one final verse. It's one that we're going to cover next week, but I want you just to see it this morning. Verse 28, if you just look down there, it says, uh, this is right after the interaction. So John has just come and doubted whether Jesus is truly the Messiah because his expectations hadn't been met. And Jesus says this, I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Isn't that comforting? That John just expressed doubt in Jesus. He just asked for confirmation about his identity when he should have known better. Uh, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus baptized. He saw the Holy Spirit descend on him visibly. Uh, John heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But now his unmet expectations led him to doubt who Jesus was. But Jesus turns right around and says, that's the greatest prophet that's ever lived. You're not a lame Christian if you have times of doubt and disappointment, times when you question what God is doing. This time where John was doubting did not define the whole story of his life. And so if you're disillusioned with God, if you've ever had those, those unmet expectations, those disappointments, where things are just not going the way you expected, follow the example of John. Take those struggles directly to Jesus. He won't write you off because of a time of weakness. He may offer a gentle rebuke and then tell you to trust him. And when we don't understand what God's doing, but we trust him anyway, that's what faith is all about. Now, what about the last part of that verse? You see that last sentence there. He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Uh, what is that talking about? How are we supposed to understand that? I think the best way to understand it is by coming back next week, because we don't have time to cover it. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help each one of us as we go through these seasons of life where we struggle, where we wonder what you're doing, or maybe more often what you're not doing, why you're not responding, why you're not seemingly hearing our prayers. I pray that you would give strength to each one of us to trust you. Give us faith uh, that, that doesn't rely on circumstances, but even in hardships, even when we don't understand, we choose in humility to trust that you know what you're doing because of who you are. Pray that you'd give us that faith that would keep us going through our difficult seasons of life. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 
hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.